I'm excited to jump back into our study here on the Holy Spirit. We call this life in the third person, meaning the third person of the Trinity. And that, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've talked about a number of things, and uh, we're going to explore a new aspect of the ministry of that wonderful Holy Spirit in our lives today. You know, during the Roman Empire, the Caesar, whenever Caesar would send a parcel or a letter uh, somewhere, it would be sealed with his signet ring. The seal of the Roman Empire would be placed on that, that item. And that seal would contain the symbol, the, the Roman eagle. And that seal meant two things. First of all, it meant that that dispatch would make it to its intended destination because uh, that carried an authority. It, it carried a guarantee that it would arrive where the Caesar wanted it to arrive. If it did not arrive, then the courier, the emissary, uh, would forfeit his life. And so it would happen. That's number one. Number two, that seal meant that no unauthorized person could break that seal. You had to be the intended recipient of uh, the communique from the Caesar. And so that seal had power. And in our series so far, when we've looked at the Holy Spirit, we've looked at various things. We've looked at the person of the Holy Spirit, and He is a person, amen? He is not an it. He is a He. We've looked at uh, the, the overall ministry according to Jesus Christ. We looked at His words in John regarding the Spirit. We looked at the coming of the Spirit there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We looked at the baptism of the Spirit and what that means and signifies. We looked at the regenerating ministry of the Spirit. Tonight we're going to look at the seal, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says several times that you and I as Christians, we have the sealing of the Spirit. We are sealed. What does that mean? Well, there are several ways, five in fact, that we're going to look at uh, how we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as children of God. And so in your notes, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit regarding, number one, our identification as saints. You are a Christian, and therefore you are identified as a saint. You're not a saint because you performed a miracle. You're not a saint because you're venerated by some pope or some body at the Vatican, all right? You are a saint by virtue of the fact that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you through the lens of Christ, he sees a saint. That's what the Bible calls those who come by faith. And so we are sealed regarding that identification. And I just want to show you from the Bible, and just fair warning, we're going to jump around a lot tonight. So if you're turning pages, you might get a couple of paper cuts all right, I just want to let you know that. We are going to have everything on the screen. I do encourage you to look it up for yourself because I think that's always good and you can jot notes in your Bible. And I, I'm convinced the Lord loves to hear pages turn. I just am. But I want to show you different examples of sealing so that you get the idea of what we're talking about, what a seal is, the proper picture. So in Song of Solomon, and we're going to look at chapter 8, this is... Uh, Hebrew poetry, and it's, it's written in the voice, uh, Solomon wrote it, but it's written in the voice of a woman to her husband. And in Song of Solomon 8.6, this is a beautiful, beautiful verse, but it's, it says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now what does that mean for a woman to say, I want to be set as a seal upon your arm? She's saying, uh, you know, I want some kind of assurance, honey, that when any woman in the world looks at you, 
they know you're off limits. All right? I want, I want to be a seal on your arm. You tattoo this visage on you somewhere so that when any chica takes a gander at you, they know, uh-uh, hands off, he's taken. That's what that means. She goes on to say, for love is strong as death. She's dead serious about this. She says, jealousy is fierce as the grave. And the original word for grave is sheol in Hebrew, and it's the abode of the dead. He's, she's saying this is serious as hell. All right? <laughs> Nobody else gets your heart. You are identified with me. You are mine. That's my man. That's my mate. All right, you get it? So there's possession there. Uh, the original word there, Sheol. So it's very, very serious. So here's another one from Ezekiel. God is uh, talking to his prophet. He's looking for people during a very dark time in Israel's history, uh, in an apostate uh, season. He's looking for those whose hearts are dedicated to him. For those who, who, you know, Israel has now been judged. They've been taken into captivity. Why? Because they were, they were sacrificing to, to false idols. Back in Egypt, he allowed Babylon to come in there. And so he says to the prophet, I want you to look about and find some guys that care about what matters to me. In Ezekiel 9, verse 4, he says to Ezekiel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. He's saying, put a seal on those guys. That, that mourn for what breaks my heart. In this apostate nation, when evil is running amok, I want to identify the men that are loyal to me. Seal them. Those are my people. Those are my guys. I woke up this morning to the news post-elections nationwide. I saw how amendments passed or uh, bills passed in different states allowing abortion. In light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, some of these states have put it on ballots to permit abortion. And I see this. and breaks my heart. God's looking for people whose hearts break for the things that break his heart. He says Ezekiel put a seal on them. Paul writes about Abraham in Romans 4.11 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision. As what? As a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here God's made a covenant to this man, Abraham. He's saying, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to make your descendants number like the stars. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant, a seal of righteousness. What is that going to take? What form? It's going to be circumcision, circumcision. Why circumcision? Well, in circumcision, what happens? Flesh is removed. And it's, it's for the purposes of cleanliness, of purification. And so it's a symbol that God had cleansed uh, that nation, set them aside for his purposes. He's saying, that's my nation. It's a seal I am placing on them. Paul writes of himself in 1 Corinthians uh, 9.2. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. People were doubting whether Paul was actually an apostle. They're like, you're not one of the 12. He's like, no, I'm God's special apostle to the Gentiles. You Corinthians are Gentiles. You are the seal of my apostleship. God's saying, that's my apostle. Uh, in Revelation, you read about a certain seal. The Antichrist is going to seal people with his number, right? The number of the beast. 666 in those last days. 
And that's going to signify they are aligning with him. The Antichrist will say, that's my follower. Right there, they've taken my, my sign. It's an identification. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I, I was in a very small church up in South Dakota. We didn't have a big budget or anything like that. Um, I wanted to take kids to camp. We couldn't afford it. My students couldn't afford it. Uh, and so I conducted my own little camp on the campus of our church, which was tiny as a postage stamp, you know. And so we did things right there in our church. It took a whole weekend. I planned some activities. I had some volunteers. We conducted some games. We had some breakout times. We had some deep dives in the Word of God. Uh, went through some material with them. And then I thought to cap it all off, we'd all take them in a caravan up to this amusement park in Minnesota called Valley Fair. And, uh, you know, everybody paid their way to Valley Fair. That's all they could afford to do. And, and I'd never taken a group. This is, I'm in my 20s at the time. I'd never taken a group that size anywhere like that. There's a lot of people at Valley Fair in the summertime. And so I, uh, I had T-shirts made. And they were fluorescent green. That's right. I didn't lose a single kid. All right? You could spot them all over that amusement park. And I put a seal on them, you see. I identified them. These are the first Southern Baptist church kids at Valley Fair. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy about being in the midst of heresy. Uh, in a dark day, you, you have falsehood that has infiltrated the church. And sometimes it's hard to know the false teachers from the real teachers. And so 2 Timothy, Paul tells them, he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Bearing this seal. And what we see here is there's a seal that God places on us, and it's a twofold seal for the purpose of identifying us as the genuine article. There's going to be an aspect of this seal that is recognizable to God, and there's going to be one that's recognizable to man. He goes on, he says, The Lord knows who are His. In other words, there's a heavenward seal that when God looks and in the midst of apostasy and, and heresy, in the middle of a hundred heretics, if there's one righteous man, God knows who it is. He says, that's my, that's my follower. That's my child right there. So it's a heavenward seal. But there's also a seal that is observed on the earth because he goes on and says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So there is an aspect of this sealing that is to identify us, not just to God, but to man, you understand. And some would call that the perseverance of the saints, that you walk the walk and you don't deviate. And we all know somebody that we once considered to be a Christian that has veered from the perceived path. They, they fell off the deep end. You know what I'm talking about? Breaks your heart. All of a sudden, they just they reject orthodoxy, or they might even renounce Christ. And, you know, even though Scripture says God looks on the inside, you know, we look on the outside, God looks on the heart for Samuel. Uh, we can't see what God sees. We don't have that kind of spiritual x-ray vision. But apparently, there is to be some outward evidence of inward transformation. Because in Scripture, there is no example of a guy that is redeemed on the inside but outwardly unrepentant there's no example of that in the word of god there's no christian that is presented as just perpetually enjoying all forms of sin uh, without any kind of remorse without any kind of thought for it whatsoever 
but they're, but they're redeemed in the sight of God. Some have asked me, Pastor Scott, do you believe, uh, do you believe that homosexuals can be born again? Well, I, I believe that people can be saved out of that lifestyle. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over and over. But the question is not that. The question is, do you believe that, that a, a, someone who is a homosexual can be saved in homosexual at the same time? And I always ask them, can you define what you mean by a homosexual? Do you mean that it's someone who struggles with same-sex attraction? Do I think someone who struggles with same-sex attraction can be born again? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, I do. But if you're asking me, do you think a practicing homosexual who has no remorse for it whatsoever, who glories in it, do you think that they can be born again? I would say no. I would say no. Uh, that's a different question altogether. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, and incidentally, I think there's a lot of forms of sin that you can struggle with uh, and, and not, well, you're, or that you're not struggling with, but that you're okay with. And you're not a believer. You might profess to be a believer, but it's not so. Uh, I, I believe a lot of people are, are playing uh, masquerade in the church with all that. You say, well, that's really harsh. Well, you would find Romans 1, Revelation 22, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6 to be very, very harsh passages because they all talk about this. But to be sealed in terms of your character seems to be what Paul is talking about here. And, and it doesn't mean that you never, ever, ever, ever sin. That's not what it means. It means that you won't be able to indefinitely throughout life uh, sin with zero desire to change and just no regret, no remorse whatsoever. And so there is a ceiling that is heavenward. There's a ceiling that is earthly. And that is in relation to our identification as believers, okay? But the Spirit of God gives us other types of sealing. And number two in your notes, it seals us with regard to the completeness of his work. There is a completeness to the work of Christ in you. Um, let me show you another example from Scripture. This is sealing in a monetary sense. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, and I'm going to read to you from the New King James because I like the way it reads. He says, but now I, I'm going to Jerusalem to be ministered to the saints. So he's been in uh, he's writing to these Roman believers who are Gentiles, by the way. He's going to Jerusalem, and he says, It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So what's happening here is you got these Gentile Christians. They have elected to give money to bless the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Why are they doing that? Paul goes on in verse 27, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Where did the gospel come from? came out of Jerusalem. And where did it go? It went to the Gentiles via Paul and others. And so they feel indebted to that generation, the Jewish Christians back there. They wanted to bless them. Uh, now watch this in verse 28. It says, Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit... I have sealed to them, meaning I have completed the transaction by delivering the money, okay? How many of you have ever found yourself transporting a large sum of money, larger than you would carry on your person, ever choose to carry on your person? Don't you feel much more relieved when you get it where it needs to go, you know? 
I, I remember when we sold our house back in California and uh, we went down uh, to the, uh, what do you call it, the, the title place and, and they hand us this check and I'm going, I've never seen that many numbers on a check and I'm like, okay, I don't want to lose this check, you know, you just want to get it where it needs to go, let's, get the, let's go straight to the bank, no stopping, no stopping, you know. Um, he wants to seal to them this fruit. All right? So he refers to the delivery of the funds as putting his seal on it. It's completed. To put a seal on it means that, that money made it to its intended destination. Can you, can you imagine the scandal, what a debacle it would be for Gentile money intended to give to Jewish people to not make it there? I mean, you talk about two groups of people that outside of Jesus Christ are at odds with each other. Okay? So if, if, if they're sending money to the Jewish believers and it doesn't get there, what a, what a hang-up that would be. And so Paul wants to put his seal on this show of generosity, bring it to completion. When the Holy Spirit seals you, when he sealed me, he's signifying something. It is finished. It is finished. There's nothing else to be done. It's accomplished. Last words of Christ on the cross. To telestai. It is completed. It is accomplished. And you need to understand, you're complete. You're done. You're complete, okay? In terms of your status before God, you are complete. You say, well, don't I have a lot of growing to do? Yes, but I want you to think about it correctly now, all right? When we talk about Christian maturity, we're not saying that you're going to attain more, all right? We're not saying that you're going to add to your status before the Lord. You're done in terms of how he sees you. It's not about you uh, uh, elevating or expanding. It's about you deepening in your understanding of who you are. It's about you walking more fully in what has already been accomplished. See, you need to understand that. Paul says in him, this is Colossians, in him you have been made complete. He can't do any more than he's done. He can't do any more. Now it's just a matter of you deepening in your walk, in your understanding. And you got to get that concept right. Because if you don't, you won't know all that he has already given. Because you're going to try to grow in ways that are not going to result in you growing. Okay? Uh, you're going to be looking for something experiential. You're going to be looking for a greater you know, encounter. More. I need more. you got all you need. You need to deepen. You don't need to expand. Deepen, all right? If you think you're going to go out and work harder and make yourself more uh, you know, endearing to God, uh, there's, there's one of two things that are going to happen, and they're both bad. Number one, you're going to believe that you fail and that God doesn't love you as much as he could. That's bad. Or number two, this is worse, you're going to think that you have succeeded. And that's going to make you arrogant. So these are both bad. So it's not about expanding Christian maturity. It's about deepening, deepening. Okay? So I am sealed. I have, therefore, number one, I've got an identification, and I have a completeness. I've got a completeness. Now I want you to turn to Ephesians. We uh, studied Ephesians. It was the first book study I did uh, since I've been at Lamb's Chapel. We studied this on Sundays for several weeks. Chapter 1 of Ephesians talks about the Trinity's role in our salvation, uh, in chapter 1, 4, and 5, you got uh, 
the election by the Father in verse 7. You've got our redemption by the Son in verse 13, 14. You've got our sealing by the Spirit. So let's look at those two verses, 13 and 14. In Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. You're going to see that word sealed a lot tonight. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, and here's another word you're going to see a lot, the guarantee. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are three statements that we need to understand in order to really get our heads around this, this third way that we are sealed. So we're sealed in terms of, in your notes, number three, our security in salvation. You are secure in your salvation. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. In verse 14, this says that the Spirit of God is our guarantee. Uh, you know, Matthew 27, after the crucifixion, the Jews, the Pharisees, they come to Pilate, they say, now you remember what this Nazarene said, that he's going to rise in three days. You remember that, don't you, Pilate? Because, you know, you understand, we're, we're a little concerned that his followers are going to come and steal his body because he said he would raise himself in three days. So you got to secure this tomb. And what did Pilate say in Matthew 27, 65? He said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb Secure, all right? How? By sealing the tomb, the stone, and setting a guard. They made it as secure as they could. They sealed the tomb with a stone and a guard. They didn't just put a stone in front of it. That had been a lot. That stone couldn't be moved by just anybody. It took several dudes to put that stone in place. They didn't just put a stone. They didn't just put a guard. Roman guard could kill you as soon as look at you. I mean, he was lethal. They didn't just put a stone in a guard, they put a seal. There was a pilot put a stamp on that seal in front of that stone, Roman eagle right there, just like that letter or parcel I talked about at the beginning. You break that under threat of death. And that guard knows if anybody breaks that seal, he's dead. So this is a triple whammy right here. Nobody is getting in to that tomb as far as Pilate is concerned. It's a guarantee. Uh, think about what's going to happen to Satan before the kingdom begins. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 2. And I get, I get goosebumps when I read something like this. It says, and he seized the dragon. Who is that? That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer till the thousand years were ended. How many of you believe there's a coming kingdom? A thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. Some people try to tell you that it's going on right now. We're in the kingdom right now. Let me ask you a question. Does it seem like Satan is bound right now? No, he's a busy bee right now. He is hard at work. That is obvious. Anybody that says that he is bound and sealed up somewhere is smoking beer. So this is, this is future, <clears throat> but he will be sealed away, and that seal will represent the authority of the one who puts his sorry carcass down there. It's a guarantee. He's not getting out. Nobody's getting in to get to him. So you take those two pictures. What does it mean then that I am sealed with the Spirit? It means that since that Spirit 
is who? He's the third person of the Trinity, meaning he's, he's God. All right? That means my ceiling comes from God. And for my salvation to be compromised, the one to unseal me would have to be more powerful than God. Ain't no such thing, folks. No such thing. So back to Ephesians. Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. What's our inheritance? That's our final glorious state, all right? Uh, This word guarantee, Greek word is arabon. Arabon meaning earnest. We've talked about this when we studied Ephesians. We talked about earnest money. You guys know what earnest money is. You make a large purchase, you got to put down some money. It's a considerable uh, you know, percentage of, of the total price. It's earnest money. It's showing you got skin in the game. You're telling that buyer or that seller, that agent, whatever, I'm, I'm serious about this. I'm not going to leave you hanging, okay? If I don't show up on closing day, that money is yours. I wave bye-bye to that, okay? So God is putting down earnest on you. He is presenting some earnest in his purchase of you. What's closing day? That's the day of your redemption. That's the day of your, that's the completion of your life on this earth when you come and you stand before a holy God. If you were to lose your salvation, what is the earnest? Tell us right here. In Ephesians, the earnest is the Holy Spirit. That is the earnest of our salvation. All right? That is the guarantee of our salvation. God puts earnest down for you. If you lose your salvation, what happens to the Holy Spirit? God loses him. That Holy Spirit goes to the lake of fire. You say, that's ridiculous. Exactly. It is ridiculous. That will never happen. Is God ever going to relinquish the third person of his Godhead? Never. And so what that means is there is zero chance, Christian, of you losing your salvation. Because that would mean, for you to lose your salvation would mean God would stop being God. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Closing day is coming, and he will not lose you. What would you put down as earnest money? Would you ever put down a family member as earnest if there was a possibility of you losing that family member? I'm not talking about your in-laws. I mean, your own child, all right? You going to do that? If there's a possibility of losing it? No, no. And so neither is God. There's no possibility. There's, there's no daylight for that. He's not backing out of this deal. Now, there's another term in that passage in Ephesians, in verse 14, that we already looked at. I want to show it to you again. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, verse 14, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory until we acquire possession of it. But what I want you to understand is that the ceiling is not just for our benefit. All right? It is of immeasurable benefit. But I I would say that this particular translation is inadequate here in the ESV. The original Greek renders literally as not until we acquire possession of it, but it should be until the, the, the redemption of the purchased possession. That's how it ought to read. That the Holy Spirit is our guarantee until the redemption of the purchased possession. Who's the purchased possession? We are. That's right. 
And so, number four in your notes, this sealing is in relation to the delivery of his possession. This sealing isn't just about our benefit, okay? What's being presented here is not so much you and I taking hold of something as much as it's him taking hold of us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 26 says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He has put his seal. Uh, see, the word in the Greek here is sphragisamenos, uh, all right? And that is the only time that it's phrased that way. It's in the middle voice. And that, what that means is that God is doing something for his own purposes. It's to benefit himself. He's got a personal interest in what is being accomplished. Now, there is tremendous benefit. I can't wait to stand before him in glory. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to shaking loose of these uh, surly bonds of earth and have a new glorious body and all of that stuff. I cannot wait for that day to be reunited with lost loved ones, to see all of you, to see Jesus. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's unfathomable. Can't wait for it. But you know who's looking forward to it more than me? God, God, his zeal for this cannot be matched, and he, he is longing for it so much he has put his seal on his purchased possession to make sure that we get home, that we get home. You know, I went on a trip to Israel, my wife and I, several years ago, and there was an extension. We went to uh, the Greek Isles, went to Turkey and we visited ancient Ephesus. It was amazing. But while we were in Turkey, we went to a place where they sold Turkish rugs. And they were beautiful. I mean, they were, they were, they were incredible. I'd never seen anything, anything so beautiful and extravagant. They're very, very expensive. But they're, they're hitting up these American tourists. You know, they're like, you know. And this was not cheap stuff, like at a market. This is like high-end, finest in the world. And uh, we had a lady that traveled in our group that she was buying a lot of stuff and she bought one of these huge beautiful Turkish rugs and they had a special thing that they would do they would they would ship it free of charge because they're very expensive to begin with I think they work it into the cost of the rug but they would roll this thing up they put it in a, a vacuum sealed uh, uh, bag and uh, they would put a seal on it with a code and they'd give the one who bought it a code and you could literally track the delivery of this rug all the way. And because you had the right code, you were guaranteed it was going to get to you. You could find it anywhere in the world. You knew it was going to be. And you could track it. And she tracked that thing, and it left Istanbul, and it went to Athens, and it went from Athens to London, and it went from London to Philadelphia, and it went from Philadelphia to San Francisco, and then it got on a truck, and it came all the way out to Modesto. And she could see it at every stop. Jesus did the same thing. He was from a far country. He came to this foreign land, an alien, not received by his own, but to those who did receive him, God put a seal on them. They had the receipt of his word. They came by faith and he sealed them. And Christ left and he went back to his father. How's he going to make sure his purchased possession that he bought at Calvary is going to get home? They got a seal. He's got the receipt. And he's tracking them. Every step of the way in your life, you got a seal on you. You're going to hit detours. You're going to make several stops along the journey of life. But you are guaranteed to make it home.
to glory. You are his purchased possession. Even when you don't know it, even when you don't feel like it, even when you think, I don't know, I just don't know, he's got me. I don't know, you know, we, we live by faith, not by sight, right? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You put your faith in him, you're trusting in him, that he's got you. You can't live by how you feel. you got to remember. I've had people come to me. I just don't know. I just don't know. Well, have you put your faith in Jesus? Yeah, I remember doing that, but I just don't know. I'm like, don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. That's not a cliche. That is true. You guys, <laughs> Sunday, I got home from church. And sometimes Sundays are, are work days around the house. And I was going to go down to the pond, do some work down there, and uh, put on some grubbies. And I like to listen to podcasts when I work. And so I put my, my, uh, my beats in my ears, and I, I pulled up a podcast. And uh, I went back into our bathroom for a minute before I was to go down. But I'm already listening to my podcast. And I hear, I knew what my wife was doing. My wife was going to decorate for Christmas. It's not too soon. All right. I saw somebody post something the other day. They said, you know, the people that are judging those that are already decorating for Christmas are the same people that post about their birthday month. And, and they said, if you get a month, Jesus gets two. All right. So back off. Um, so Deanna's up in the attic. She's getting a bin of, of Christmas decor. I'm back in the bathroom. I got my earbuds in. I hear some high-pitched yelling. I see my son run by the door. I'm like, what, what's going on? So I take my ears out. I go, Grayson? And he comes back. He goes, Dad, Dad, come on. you got to come. I told you, come on. I'm like, what is going on? So I put my phone down. I go in the living room, and I see my wife's body <laughs> protruding out of the ceiling. We had some work done years, uh, months ago, and there was some wiring up there, and, and uh, there, I guess that some plywood got unscrewed, and it got never put back properly. And so she's holding this bin, and she steps on the plywood, and it wobbles, and she takes a step, went right through. She catches herself. Drops the bin, catches herself on some wood bin. And I go in there and she's hanging and I hear her shrieking and there's fear in her voice and she's terrified. Help, help, you know? And I ran over and I'm pushing. I felt like I was saving somebody from the gallows. You know, I'm like, live, you will live. You know, I'm pushing. Now, I'm there. Now, she doesn't know it's me. She, for all she knows, it's her 12-year-old trying to help her out. But it's me. I got her. Okay, she's not going to fall. She can't see me. She can't hear me because she's up there in the attic and everything. Her head is anyway. And, and uh, you know, but I'm there. I'm not going to let her fall. It would never occur to me to let her fall. Now, I will tell you, I did for a split second think, do I have time to go get my camera? Because, I mean, that's a once in a lifetime shot. But I, I pushed up on her tennis shoes, and my daughter helped pull her out, so she got up there. You know. Later, we got her a little calmed down. She's sitting on the sofa, and uh, you know, she's, she'd stop shaking. I got my arm around her. The kids are there, and I'm, I'm like, oh, baby. I go, man, that was scary, wasn't it? <sighs> but I say, you know, the, the important thing is that you have given me a sermon illustration. <laughs> God's got gotcha. you, even when you don't see it. 
All right? He's got you. And uh, then we read in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We are sealed for the day of redemption. And some say, what's that mean? What's that day of redemption? Am I not redeemed? I put my faith in him. Did he not redeem me already? What's this day of redemption stuff? Well, you're bought, but you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Uh, I'm going to show you another major text here, 2 Corinthians 5. Now, I love this text, and you'll love it too, especially if you're middle-aged or older, okay? Uh, Because that's when your body starts this process that gradually speeds up, where you're dying cell by cell, you know, follicle by follicle. And uh, what this speaks to is his sealing of us, in your notes, number five, according to the sinlessness of our final state. The sinlessness of our final state. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the tent that is our early home is, earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. This tent language, you may recall uh, Paul had a side hustle. He was a tent maker. That's how he funded some of his ministry, right? And so he, he made tents, and he knew what tents were like. He knew how these things break down, these, these tents. They wear out. They get old. And so he's using that image to describe our temporal bodies, and he's saying we got something better waiting for us. He says, a house made not with hands, uh, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may, be found, uh, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent we groan, uh, being burdened. What's that mean, we groan? How many of you groaned this morning? When you got up from your bed, you know, my soul is saved and reserved for eternity. My body is a hot mess, okay, uh, and getting worse all the time. The tent's wearing out. Now, maybe your tent's not working out, uh, worth wearing out, okay, but don't get cocky. You younger people, don't get cocky, all right? Uh, it's coming. That's right. We're all dying. You're like, I'm not dying. Well, some of you have glasses, or contacts, that means that you're dying from the head down. All right? Some of you, you got a hearing aid or you don't hear so good. Your, your ears are dying. Uh, you know, some of you, your hair is dying. And as a result, you are dying your hair. Because it's turned a little gray or turned a little white or turned a little loose, you know? Happens to everybody. Happens to me. I just grow it long where I can and comb it right. It's, it's an art you know, but it happens. Why do we wear out? We've studied this book of Genesis. What happened? Adam disobeyed God. That was the entrance of sin into this world. And not just the world as Adam knew it, as that world would go on, every being that inhabited that world would be tainted by sin. Now, let me show you. I want to give you a little theology lesson right here. There's a couple ways you're tainted by sin. You're touched by sin. The first way in your notes is called inherited sin inherited sin. And here's the definition. It's the sinful state into which all people are born. It's the sinful state in which all people are born. Inherited sin. You inherit it. Okay, we call this uh, the sin nature. We call this original sin. Maybe you've heard that. Original sin is not a specific sin. You know, some say, well, the original sin was, uh, was sex or, you know, gluttony. or No, it's not a specific activity. It is your sinful state. That you have inherited. Ephesians 2 3 says, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, 
by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, everybody, okay? Wrath is used there. That means there's a judgment that is the result of your sin, even for those who bear it by nature. Sin has affected every single part of us. It's not merely what you do. It's what you are. It's what you are. Your intellect, your emotions, your understanding, your will, it's all tainted. You've inherited it. Now, what is the, transi- uh, excuse me, the transmission of this sin? How is inherited sin trans- uh, uh, transmitted? Well, it starts with Adam in your notes. Uh, it, it's transmitted from one generation to the next indefinitely. Person to person to person. Okay, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is David. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, this is genetic. You got it. You got it from your papa. All right? Uh, your mother, right? Uh, I got a graphic I want to show you. This is how inherited sin is transmitted. You see Adam there? You got Adam. He goes to Seth. That sin goes to Seth's boy, Enosh, goes to Enosh's boy, Canaan, and all the way to you and me. And that's how this all works. And you recall, Adam, we can, we can leave that screen now, you recall Adam was created in the image of God. But later when Seth is born, what does it say? It says, and he fathered Seth in his own image. And you are in the image of Adam. And so on and so forth. We are in the likeness of the fallen. And there's a penalty for this. That's the transmission. But the penalty in your notes for inherited sin is spiritual death and hell. Okay? Judgment. All right? If it's not dealt with, where do you end up? You end up in hell. You, just, you don't believe me? You just go to Revelation 20 and you see all the people end up in the lake of fire. Everybody tainted by sin ends up in the same place. All right? I'm giving you the good news tonight. But listen, here it is the good news, really. There's a remedy. Here's the remedy for inherited sin. In your notes, it's redemption and the Holy Spirit, including judgment on the sin nature, so that the believer is no longer bound to sin. What did Jesus do? He got on that cross and he he judged sin. That was a judgment of sin. By being judged himself. He judged sin. He took our sin upon him. Galatians 5.24, those that belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So through Calvary, your sin nature was judged. And as a result, you have a new nature alongside your old nature. And your new nature is separate from the old nature. Now, you, you still deal with both of them right now. But you are no longer accountable for that for which your old nature has been judged through Calvary, all right? That's why Paul says in Romans, when I sin, it's not I who sins, it's sin within me. It's sin that lives in me, talking about the old nature. Your sin nature is judged. Romans 8.1 says of you, the redeemed of Christ, and this is by trivia question, what is Pastor Scott's favorite verse in the whole Bible? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it get any better than that? I mean, glory, hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord, slap somebody, that is good stuff. <laughs> I'm not condemned. Whew. And then we see another way that you're touched by sin. Not only through inherited sin, some people argue, is it inherited sin or is it something else? Well, it's both. You got it both. You got both barrels here. 
This is called in your notes, imputed sin. Imputed sin. What is that? The definition is, this is the charging of Adam's sin to your account. Okay? Thanks, Adam. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the key verse regarding the imputation of sin is Romans 5.12. It says, therefore, as sin entered the world through one man. Who is that? That's Adam. And death through sin. All right? So you get the object and the result here. And in this way, death came to all people. Because all sinned. Now, there's a lot packed into that verse. But it speaks to the transmission of imputed sin, which is what? In your notes, the transmission is that it comes directly from Adam to each individual in every generation. It's not passed one to one to one to one. It comes from Adam, and it automatically applies to all of us who would ever come afterward. Uh, you might say, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. This ought to be on Adam. Well, Adam was the head. He was the representative of the whole human race. He chose to sin because he was our representative. We are all, therefore, guilty. It's called headship. And that is the nature of sin. There are ramifications. When you sin, there are consequences uh, for those around you. They aren't guilty of what you're guilty of. If I commit adultery, that affects my family. It affects this church, you see. So that's just the nature of sin in general. When it comes to this, I think about, you know, if, 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 if our commander-in-chief wakes up feeling dangerous and he decides to call up North Korea and Russia and Iran and say, your mama's ugly, and then pushes that button, guess what? We're at war. All of us. But I didn't push the button. Doesn't matter. Your representative did. Adam was our representative. And besides, before you get insolent about this according to scripture every person ever born was in Adam when he sinned we were already in Adam we were represented by him but collectively we sinned when he sinned you say well I didn't eat the fruit the Bible seems to indicate that if you had physically been there instead of Adam you'd have done the exact same thing and that's why you bear his guilt because God knows this. Hosea 6, 7 says, As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Where? With Adam in Eden. There's this concept of, of the federal headship of Adam that through Adam we all sinned. That's what Romans 5.12 said. That death came to all people because all sinned. It's okay if you don't understand it. It's still true. It's still true. So here's the graphic for how imputed sin is transmitted. On the screen, I want to show you. You got Adam, and then as Adam sinned, it's applied to Seth, but at the same time, it's applied to Enosh. It's applied to Canaan. Those are successive lineage, but it doesn't come step by step. It just comes to all of us across time. It is imputed to us, all right? All right, so enough of that graphic. And here's the penalty. This is the penalty. This is what it means for us. It means physical death. It means that through sin, one man, sin came, and death through sin. And by death, it means physical death. What was the promise to Adam and Eve? The, the threat, don't eat of that tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He was talking about physical death. They didn't die that day, but only because he made a sacrifice for them. But the threat was, through sin comes physical death. 
Uh, Romans 5, 13, 14, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin was not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. What did everybody between Adam and Moses have in common? Even before the advent of the law, they all died. Except for Enoch. He was taken. But they all died. Uh, it says, Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I got news for you, and I hate to break it to you. One day you're going to die. You're going to die. Physically. Unless the Lord comes back. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be awesome. But if he tarries, you will die. But here's the remedy. Here's the remedy for imputed sin. And this is the real remedy. Because the, the way that Paul describes believers who physically die, he doesn't say that they died. He says they've fallen asleep because there's a resurrection. You see, everybody that falls asleep, the idea is that they awake one day. And there will be a great getting up morning. There is a resurrection coming. And so here's the remedy. That even though we physically die, there's a remedy. Okay, The remedy for imputed sin is imputed righteousness in your notes. Imputed righteousness of who? Of Christ. See, there are three types of imputation. Uh, When Adam sinned, it was Adam's sin imputed to you and I. Right? It was applied to our account. When Christ went to the cross, our sin was imputed to Christ. He took our sin on himself. Right? 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. See, So he took our sin upon himself, but then something amazing happens. When we put in our faith in what he did at Calvary, there's another imputation that occurs. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise the Lord. That we are the righteousness of God. Righteousness is something that we require for eternity with God. Our salvation impacts our spiritual status in three ways. You put your faith in Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You might write this down. You're saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? Meaning, the eternal consequences for your sin, you know, what are the wages of sin? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you come to faith in Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin. But not only that, you are saved from the power of sin. Because you were first indwelled, sealed by his spirit. So you've got his spirit in you. That saves you. You're baptized into his spirit. So you're saved from the penalty But now you're saved from the power of sin because by the indwelling nature of that spirit, you now got a new nature. You're not just the flesh, you're also spirit. You're not just the old nature. You don't just have to do what the flesh tells you to do. Now you can do what the spirit is leading you to do. You got an alternative. Whereas before, you were hardwired to do bad. It was a foregone conclusion that you would sin. Now you don't have to sin. You are empowered to live according to the will of God by the Spirit. So both of these aspects of salvation from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, they both involve the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But there's one thing that you have not experienced yet. 
You are saved from the penalty of sin. You are saved from the power of sin. You are not yet saved from the presence of sin. Because this, this soul of yours that is redeemed, that is saved, that is reserved for glory, at the moment, it's encased in tainted, corrupt flesh. And you still have to contend with the old man, with the old nature. But someday, you and I, we're going to go to the Lord. And we're going to be with him. And that is the day of our redemption. And we're going to stand there in total freedom. And, and we will have shaken off this meat bag that we're walking around in. That tempts us. That condemns us. And we will stand before him perfect, perfect, perfect. And what seals us for that day? The Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 5, goes on. It says, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee. We are sealed. We get to swap this broken down tent for a brand new building, a glorious temple built by God. So what does the Spirit do for us? He identifies us as His. I am His and He is mine. It signifies that we are completed. We're a finished work. We're a masterpiece. He has exhausted all of glory to do what He has done in us. He can do no more. It gives us security, this sealing of the Spirit. I can know that I know that I know that I know that I belong to him. I don't need to question my salvation. I don't need to worry about it caving in on me. I am on sure footing. It, it promises delivery of this package. I'm going to get to the intended destination for the glory of God and the purpose of his possession. And it is the guarantee that when I get there, my future state will be one of utter perfection and utter sinlessness. I might even be tall. Or all of you will be short. <laughs> but it'll be glorious either way. Won't that be great? Hey, can we just say amen to what God has done? Amen, amen. amen. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the, the wonder of your word, Lord. We just are so encouraged by what you have granted us understanding of in the scripture, God, regarding this promise, the sealing of the Spirit. May we walk in that confidence. You do what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.